1: Today, I have a friend with us, a colleague, Valerie Wise. Valerie is a trained solution-focused psychotherapist, author, college instructor, addictions counselor, speaker, and biblical life and marriage coach. Her primary focus is on promoting healthy spirituality, physically and emotionally, whole relationships in the African-American community that can withstand the hellish fallout from systemic racism. Solution-focused therapy and the use of biblical principles are helping her to do just that. Welcome, Valerie, and thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this sensitive topic. Thank you, Kim. This is a pleasure. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting into this because you know I'm a big promoter of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I know that you are very active in the African-American community, so I would like to ask you some questions if that's okay that's perfectly fine. Let's go. All right. So how do you see that the use of solution-focused treatment supports the goal of mental wellness in the Black community? Hmm. I think it's a perfect fit because solution-focused comes
0: from the perspective that there is always hope. And through the questions that are used, using the language of the clients, of the person in front of me, It allows us in our relationship to talk more from the perspective of what's going right rather than what's wrong. It allows people to be reminded of their strengths, their resilience, their courage, and just how they've been able to overcome in the midst of some incredible circumstances. L.A. Connie, who's a person I've been studying with, often says that he's a hope dealer He and Dr. Adam Fora talk about this, but I believe that fits so well with my own personal values, as well as professional, that solution focus provides hope Seem like a hopeless situation.
1: It reminds me of some things that I know we've talked about in the past, but it begs the question, not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you? That's the thing that we really want to find out and understand that what you're doing is not out of pathology. It's out of adaptation to difficult, challenging circumstances. It's actually a superpower, not something that's wrong with you. I love that. I even wrote an article once called Coaches as Hope Warriors. So, Yeah, Yeah. I do think that helping our clients develop that positive expectancy is super important because if you don't believe they can get better, how the heck are they supposed to believe it, right? Isn't that the truth? And if I can add to that, I think the important thing to remember is that
0: you and I were not trained to do that within our respective schools, you know, it was from a kind of problem based model, like a medical model, we find out what's wrong, we give a diagnosis, etc. And what I found over the years is how people begin to identify with that, their labels. And from the solution focus, you don't even address the labels.
1: I'm an LCPC, and I never once have diagnosed anyone, and I never will. You know what? That says so much about you. Congrats. Bravo. And you also probably saw a
0: lot of people moving through their difficulties. What we provide people is not a way around. It's not avoiding. It's actually giving you the strength to continue through what you've done. And my curiosity is always, tell me about how you've made it to this point.
1: Right. Why are you still standing? How are you still standing? How are you right still now? standing? Let's celebrate that. Yeah. And that's such a refreshing approach for the person who's sitting in the chair opposite you because they come in feeling broken. There's something wrong with me and you're supposed to fix me. But that's not what you and I do. We help people see inside and know first off, they're not broken. And second off, any growth comes from them, not from us.
0: That and what you just said, I need to just encapsulate those words and put them on a bumper sticker or something, because people need to know they do have the power. I love what you said about superpower. I see a lot of people who are in the black and brown community. Many of them come in with the belief that somehow they don't have their power. And somehow I will give them the answers when they're put in a position where actually they're empowered or There is an expectation that they have the answers for themselves. They don't always genuinely know what to do, but I'm pretty persistent that somehow I believe you do know what to do. Let's see what happens when you imagine what you really want
1: can be there. Mm, Beautiful. Where have you seen the issue of mental illness most prevalent in the Black community? Wow, Kim,
0: my first response is, where have I not seen it? I see it in families of affluence, education, and people who are homeless or on public assistance, whatever. I see it because there is a legacy of trauma that exists within our communities. Thinking about today, I, I was actually thinking too about the indigenous people of the United States and how the incidence of mental illness, depression, suicide, et cetera, is at numbers that are just off the scale. When people have undergone some of the things that historically have happened, certainly to Black and Brown people, if they did not have trauma, that would be unusual. Getting back to what we were just talking about, helping them to realize what you've accomplished to this point is heroic. It's super heroic. Usually, people talk about their faith, family is often a big component of their support. With the pandemic, that has altered, of course, that kind of inner relationship that was possible before. And so many people are reaching out to get help. What I remember, I try to remember as I'm working with someone is that I do have a genuine caring about them as human beings. I don't support their speaking of themselves in anything other than loving terms. And I listen very closely to their language and use that language in helping them uncover their strengths. So you
1: get into their world. You first listen to it, work to understand it, and then craft your responses based on it. I do. The truth is
0: I'm a part of their world. A lot of times people are looking for someone who can identify with them culturally. Having grown up in Gary, Indiana, Midwest, Home of Michael Jackson. Yes, ma'am. Jackson 5, right? That's right. Uh, There's a certain level of uh, life experience that I can bring into this. I come to each session with awe, really. And in spite of the traumatic history, in some instances, many instances, we don't even address. I go with where they are in the moment when they show up. They realize that, you know what? Whatever happened has nothing to do with me right now. I am pretty amazing. I love the discoveries. It's so cool to watch the aha moments happen.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that keeps us keeping on in this field, isn't it? You bet. You bet. Yeah. So, what do you believe are the contributing factors to seeing this mental illness very prevalent in the Black community, Valerie? What do you think contributes to that?
0: Systemic racism. Just to know that there is a system in place that is designed to make sure that you don't achieve the same economic social, political, financial, when you begin to realize and understand the reality of the kinds of systems that are in place to keep you from attaining a certain equality, no matter what you do, everything that you're told to do, you get your education, you're keeping your nose clean. You're not in trouble. And then you have stories like what happened to Ahmad Arbery jogging through a neighborhood, maybe stood in a building that was being constructed, but that didn't deserve him being killed, shot down like an animal. There's a book that I'm supporting, promoting called Fitness for Trial. And in that book, there's a discussion about a young man who was walking down the street and the author calls it walking while black. Because of his mental illness, there was an interaction with the police and he was arrested and he spent almost two years awaiting to be deemed fit for trial. And yet there was never over that time any clear understanding as to why he was arrested. When you talk about how do these things happen, it happens when you're born black, you're born brown, you're born Asian, you're born as a Native, Native American. Yeah. Yeah. You are the other, when in fact, throughout the world, we know that people that are called white and that's not even a right kind of description, are in the minority globally. But in the United States, there's just been a system that's set up to make sure that you are never deemed equal as.
1: It's bound to take a toll. For me, it sounds like the need for power is always compromised. You can't achieve what you see your white counterparts achieving. And it's just a constant reminder that there's different standards all the time. I have to tell you, like I mentioned earlier,
0: I grew up in Gary, Indiana, 50s and 60s. And I was used to seeing black professionals, lawyers, judges, doctors, nurses, teachers, artists, I left that community, went to the university where there was a lot of racism. I graduated from Indiana University in Bloomington. As I left the university, I started going into the world. And that's where I realized not much had changed in the United States. On the college campuses, sometimes I'd be involved with protesting or whatever. <laughs> it was going to change the world. And then it dawned on me, like, get the paper, get out. You could do more that way. But I realized and in going into various parts of the country, that there was still a mentality of very low expectations in many instances, and maybe surprised when people showed up that had accomplished certain things. I encountered people who had never left their communities, had never ventured into the downtown areas of their big cities. I was in California near LA, or even in Chicago, realizing a lot of people have never been downtown. And what is that about? It's like that story about the elephant. As a young elephant, they put a chain around it to a log, and then he becomes this two-ton, four-ton animal, and he never realizes he could leave. he just take the log with him. I really believe a lot of that has happened to us, and I also see how, in spite of some of those things, we have risen to the occasion and exceeded. We have to acknowledge a lot of the accomplishments that people, diverse communities have made.
1: But it's not for lack of you know that you have to pain and suffering has gone into that. It's sweat and tears. Valerie, what role do you believe historical trauma plays in the mental health issues you're seeing? I just got certified in trauma, so I feel like I know a little bit now. And one thing that I know is that when you're having a trauma response, you can't think clearly. Your only thought is fight or flight. And so I think about a person black or brown who's pulled over by police is having some kind of trauma response based on what they know in their world. So some of the things that they do or responses that they have may not be well thought out in their own best interest because they're thinking fight or flight. Sure. Tell me what you think about historical trauma and mental health. The interesting part about this whole notion of
0: historical trauma is a relatively new phenomenon. It's like somebody had a thought, you know what, Thinking about this and this and when it happened or whatever, maybe there's something to this. We talk about post-traumatic stress, etc. But when you've had generations of stress, that kind of trauma, if you will, I think about the Indigenous people. I think about my ancestors and people in Latinx community, Asians, Chinese Americans, etc. They suffered great indignities it's time that we recognize that what happened historically is still happening. I've read where sometimes the majority will say things like, why don't you just get over it? To me, it's like when I worked with women or victims of violence in the home and the relationship, just get over it. So you're just ignoring my pain. I don't exist. But historically, we need to talk about that. If you ignore what you did, Yeah, it was 400 years ago, but you did it. And the fact is, you're still implementing the same kind of thing, maybe more modern. There was a time in the 20th century, lynching of Black men was legal. Ida B. Wells from Chicago, a really courageous woman took a stand and she used everything in her power to fight against that. But people use lynchings as public outings, social outings. Families would bring their children. Entertainment. And that wasn't that far removed from slavery. We can't ignore the historical antecedents that have created some of the problems we see today. My concern is that a lot of our youth don't understand or know the history. When you take a people's history, take their language, you take their culture, they don't have much left. So it's contributed greatly to the depression, the level of adolescent depression, Someone we both know mentioned to me how he saw some statistics recently about suicide among Black adolescents. I remember being at NIMH meeting years ago, and they talked about suicide by homicide, where some of the young people are actually provoking a violent response from police. Suicide uh, by cop, they call it. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with very young children as a consultant to a domestic violence agency and encountered suicidal ideation among
1: four-year-olds. I've experienced that as well in my foster yeah. care days. It's just heartbreaking. What does a four or five-year-old know about killing themselves, but yet they have very high formulated plans they, for doing yes, just that? Yes, yes.
0: What we believe children have this view of themselves as being able to help their family. They blame themselves problems in their homes. They see things getting better. That has just stuck with me all these years. If you're living in situations where there's such poverty, there's violence. As a 13, 14, 15 year old, the biggest thing I had to worry about was if I would be asked out Friday night or whatever, or stay at home. But you have kids today that are literally watching their friends be gunned down. And this is not something that's just happening. I remember when our former president was inaugurated, he made some comments about Chicago, killing in the streets and all that. But a lot of things people are experiencing and acting out on themselves comes from that historical trauma that's resulted in internalized oppression. We see a lack of value for each other and for ourselves.
1: If you could wake up tomorrow and a miracle happened, and there's no racism, no injustice, what would you notice in yourself?
0: I'd probably have the longest exhalation. (laughs) I would imagine there would be such a lifting of my spirit. You know, I'm a dancer. I don't dance as much as I, but I'm a dancer. And I'd probably dance So jubilantly and in such a free way, I'd probably move with such joy in every aspect. I would have a release of the latent fear that I carry for my grandchildren, for my son, for my daughter, for myself, my husband. You always think in some way you're kind of protected, but that's not really true. And if that were to be, I would know I was in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) That would be it. That would be it. I think there would be a joy that would be inexpressible.
1: One thing I've noticed is the younger generation seems to be much less biased than, say, my generation or even the generation that came after me. So like we talked about being hope warriors in therapy, I feel some hope in this area of injustice and racism. I know it may not happen in my lifetime, but I do believe that there are people who know the moral answer and who can see the systemic racism and will get in positions of power where they can do something about it. That is my genuine hope because there is nothing moral about treating people as different and not able to have the same rights as the majority. That is not what our country is built on. I am very hopeful. I really truly have hope that that vision of yours will one day be reality. Thank you, Kim. And I have to tell you how
0: much I appreciate your hopefulness and your genuineness. I recognize that there are people who have stood against injustice historically and currently at the risk of their own lives. That is a kind of courage that we need to celebrate as well. I think about the woman in the early 60s that was from New Jersey and had watched on television the civil rights marches and stuff and decided she wanted to be there with them. And who was killed? She couldn't stand by and do nothing. I believe what you and I both do,
1: we're doing the something we can and make the difference where we can. And I think that that's the key, right? You look at your life and you see, do I believe this is right? And if your answer is no, it's not right, Mm -hmm. then what can I do about it? And so often people think there's nothing I can do, but there really is something everybody can do if they want to. It really comes down to where is your moral compass? Where's your social value? And what do you think is right? And do the right thing. And for me, the right thing is never to have one group of people better off than another group of people. That is so wrong based on everything I've learned in my life from the time I was a child. I stand with you, Valerie. Whatever Mm. march you want to go on, I'm going to be there with you. If you want me, I will be there. Oh, I love Um, it. Thanks. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't already talked about? I think I might like to hear more about that book, Fit for Trial. I know you asked me to read it and I loved it. Is there anything more you want to say about that or anything else? I do want to say something about that book. It's due to be published
0: in January, January 17th. It's called Fit for Trial, Mental Illness, the Law and Family Law. So it's a book written from the perspective of a mother, a family member who had a loved one with serious mental illness and how that mental illness intersected with the criminal justice system. And it brings attention to the fact that there are thousands of people that are in prison and jails, not because they have committed a crime, but because of their symptoms of mental illness. As a result of talking about this more, we're looking at how to do away with the stigma and looking at people as not deviants deviance and aberrance or something, an anomaly in our society, but rather people for whom we should have compassion and helping our police departments because that's not what they're trained to do. But unfortunately, too many times police are a last resort because that's all families have really. That's something I do want to mention. I also am a part of NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, I have talked about the racial disparities in mental health treatment. So I'm just a part of a group of people looking to reduce the stigma around mental health issues and just being able to open our mouths and say that many of us, if not all of us, have at some point experienced a mental health crisis depression, maybe there's been suicidal ideation, that's considered a mental health issue. If we're not talking about what's happening, we're going to lose more of our young people and others to this problems. That's the one thing I'd like to leave your listeners with today.
1: Thank you for that. And if people want to contact you, Valerie, is there a way for them to reach you?
0: Yeah, I have a website, www.valariedwise.com. I can be reached by email at lifedancer1 at comcast.net. Then I have my phone. You can call me 708-269-8063. It would be great to know who's maybe heard some of our discussion today. I'd love to hear from them.
1: Terrific. You hear that people give (laughs) Valerie a call, email, anything. And I also know, Valerie, you do public speaking, don't you, on these topics? I do. Yes, I do. So if you're looking for someone to speak on uh, systemic racism, on mental illness in the black and brown community, Valerie's your girl. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Valerie, I just really want to thank you so much for being willing to talk to me about this sensitive issue. I know this is not an issue that is to be taken lightly and it is not something to be swept under the rug. So I really appreciate your willingness to talk about this with me and to my listeners. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be changing our focus to leadership and talking with Dr. Ruby Powell about the ideas around this topic and how she coaches leaders. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then.
0: This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.